Greetings, friends. This is Dr. Mark Sharona, and I want to welcome you to The Edge Podcast, where all things theological, psychological, spiritual, and cultural will be explored so that you and I might understand the times and know what to do about them. Enjoy. I grew up in the turbulent era of the 60s and the 70s. I was born in the mid-1950s, but I was part of the 60s and 70s generation that came to be known as the countercultural revolution. I vividly remember the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Dr. Martin Luther King, the moratorium on the Vietnam War. I vividly remember the dynamics of racial inequality and the many tensions we grew up under. And I also vividly remember the anti-establishment dynamic that was prevalent because of our voice being lifted up against what we felt were injustices. I remember all of that very clearly. I also remember in our generation, we were looking for utopia. Somewhere in the arts and the humanities, we had read Thomas More's Utopia, and we were looking for it. And the prophets of our time were the musicians, the Bob Dylans, the Janis Joplins, the Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, the Peter Pauls and Marys, the Barry Maguires. They, they were the voices that prophetically spoke to the yearning and the pain in our generation. And I remember the whole fervor around the Woodstock Festival. I happened to have been at Yasger's farm the week before Woodstock because my family was on vacation that follow, that previous week up at White Lake, New York, and we actually had to go to Yasger's farm to get dairy products, to get milk and eggs. And we got to the farm, and Max Yasger waited on us personally, and he told my dad, see that field out there next weekend? A bunch of kids are coming up to have a little concert. Well, a bunch of kids turned out to be thousands and a little concert turned out to be a quite a weekend of some of the greatest voices in rock and rock and roll setting the stage for what became the sexual revolution of the late 60s and early 70s of the me generation but somewhere in looking for all that utopia Crosby Stills Nash and Young told us that we had to get ourselves back to the garden That was our theology. We had to get ourselves back to the garden. It wasn't that Christ had to bring us back to the restored Edenic glory by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection. It was something we could do in and of our own ability. It was still the serpentine lie of if you eat from this tree, you'll be just like God. But we were so idealistic that we bought into the fact that if we believed it enough, and if we sought it enough, we could have it. Now, in the midst of all of our misshapen beliefs and ideologies, in the midst of all of our wayward ways and our yearnings, the Jesus movement was birthed out of all that chaos. And many of us were swept into the kingdom by this radical encounter with a living Jesus that presented himself alive by many convincing proofs. And 
we became part of a coffee house generation where we would gather at coffee houses on weekends and listen to our favorite minstrels sing songs about Jesus and we'd gather for prayer and we'd see people healed and set free and the Jesus movement grew to such an extent that some of the greatest leaders of the charismatic renewal which was happening um, in the Western world as well were, were teaching us about the deeper life, about the cross-shaped life, about abiding in Christ, about feeding on Christ. And we were growing and, and being formed in the things of God, in the deep things of God. But somewhere in the midst of that me generation, the one that Thomas Wolfe called the me generation, we began to move towards success and the accoutrements of success and getting more and having more and all the things that are tied to more. And it began to affect the way we looked at the gospel. It began to affect the way we looked at spirituality. It began to affect the way we looked at our, our lives as leaders in the church and how do we become more successful? How do we get more people in the door? How do we grow a bigger nursery? How do we grow a bigger children's church? How do we grow a bigger church altogether? And it was all tied to a church growth model that seemed to exclude the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I'm not saying there wasn't a sincerity, but there wasn't conversation about the sacredness of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It was about techniques to get people in the door, techniques to get people to stay, techniques to assimilate, techniques not to lose people. It was all technique driven. It all sounded so good because we sanctified it. We made it holy. We made it separate. But in fact, it was just Western how-to pragmatic techniques that we kind of sanctified and added to the ancient faith expecting God to bless it. But what ended up happen, happening ultimately is that so many got disillusioned with that style of ministry and leadership that they began to leave the church in droves by the time we entered into the late 90s and the early 2000s and the new atheism began to rise and there was a gap in credibility you know, the term credibility gap actually goes back to the 60s and 70s to the Lyndon Baines Johnson administration when during the war in Vietnam, the policies that were being embraced contradicted the statements that were being made. And there were many times that there were vocal, vo vocal opposition given by the younger generation to what was going on in Vietnam. Our, our voices were, were being lifted up against what we saw was a war that had no purpose. And um, sadly, that translated into an entire attitude towards the Vietnam War that left the Vietnam vets forlorn of any sense of gratitude for putting their lives in harm's way on behalf of something that didn't make sense to the general public. And... The fact is, is that there was a credibility gap. And that credibility gap was the discrepancy between the policies being made and the statements being declared by the Johnson administration. And the journalists of that time termed it the credibility gap. Now, 
The credibility gap is the, is the distance between something that's promised and something that's actually practiced. And when I think about where the church growth movement went in my generation as baby boomers, we created a credibility gap as it relates to leadership. And we did create a certain amount of disillusionment that led to a mass exodus from church. Rightly so, because again, I, I fear we think we were serving God when in actual fact we were serving principles of success and techniques of Western corporate franchise models, not realizing that some of our addiction to leadership was tied to a leadership fetish because we wanted to be like corporate America and not like the body of Christ. And it did have an effect on the emerging generation and in some ways still does. But Jesus is, as Len Sweet says, the quintessential unleader. When Barbara Kellerman, one of the greatest voices in the leadership industry and scholarship from the Harvard Kennedy Business School, who's been a prolific author for 30 years, when she wrote her number one bestseller in 2012 titled The End of Leadership, it rocked the world of Western leadership because she exposed all the flaws and failures and the reason for leadership losing its credibility in the Western world and in America in particular. And following that book, the sequel was called Followership. And again, Len Sweet, who's had a profound impact on my life, will say this, that Jesus is the quintessential unleader because he's not like the typical leadership model that we see in the Western world. And when Barbara Kellerman wrote the sequel, Followership, and began to talk about the importance of followership, Len would say that Jesus, the quintessential unleader, is the one who says, follow me. Well, where's he taking us? He's certainly not taking us into a Western world model of corporate franchise. He's taking us to Calvary. He's taking us to the Via Dolorosa. He's taking us to the cross-shaped life that leads to rising above dead things and living in ascended union with him at the right hand of the Father as a result of the outpouring of the Spirit. I make no apologies of being part of the Pentecostal charismatic third wave tribes. I deeply value the tradition that it comes from and the very powerful ways in which God has used the Pentecostal movement to change the shape of the globe as the fastest growing movement of the spirit in the church in the 20th and 21st centuries. But there is a credibility gap in leadership because of the success-driven celebrity culture that has pervaded much of the baby boomer generation that got handed down to the emerging generations that led to profound disillusionment. There is a credibility gap that's been created, and I'm mindful in saying that, that it's not a new thing. There's a lot of reasons that we can do what we do and say what we say. Many times as preachers, we don't discern how much of our affirmation we get from the people based on our performance as preachers. 
that we perform in order to be approved of, we perform in order to be recognized, we perform in order to be seen, none of which has anything to do with preaching the apostolic message of the cross and preaching it so that Christ can be made known. And so those kinds of realities have shaped the disillusionment that is prevalent in emerging generations. And it also has produced in the emerging generation those that are themselves addicted to recognition and fame and 15 minutes in the sun and um, I want to be seen, I want to be heard. What techniques can I use to turn a phrase to get a lot of people to celebrate me? How many ways can I tell a cheesy story that'll get me a bunch of social media going viral? All the stuff that's part of the celebrity-driven culture that came out of the baby boomer generation that hurt the church instead of help it has added to the credibility gap that we wrestle with. God doesn't have any superstars. God just has sinners in need of grace that can faithfully tell a story about Jesus from the scripture and make it relevant to where people are and what they're dealing with. Moses wrestled with the credibility factor. When God calls Moses, he waits until Moses is at a place of extremity. Forty years after fleeing Egypt, Moses is as far away from Egypt as he can be. And there on the backside of the desert, tending the sheep of his father-in-law, learning the language of the sheep by their instincts and their appetites. He will care for them and cause them to graze in waterless places and survive in the tundra of the wilderness of Sinai. And 40 years furthest removed from where he's been in Egypt, at the place of his extremity, the self-revealing God comes to Moses in, in a bush that's burning and isn't consumed and invites Moses on a journey to radical self-awareness and God-awareness that will lead to the kind of transformation that will make him a deliverer that can set other people free. And yet, even in the calling and commissioning of Moses, he wrestles with in Exodus 4, Lord, what if they don't believe me? And what if they say, God didn't appear to you? What do I do? And I think credibility for Moses was, it's not enough for me to have a story. It's not enough for me to tell a story. It's not enough for me to even turn a few phrases on what it was like to have an encounter with you at the burning bush. How can I explain a mystery? How can I give language to something that defies language? How can I give speech to something for which there are no words? Once we get to that level of the reawakening of the mystery of the self-revealing God, we're on holy ground and we are now beginning to be aware 
of what it might mean to speak faithfully about this one who is totally other than we are. And Moses wrestles with, I want to be believed. I want to be deemed as credible. What do I do if they don't believe what I say? And all of us that are worth our weight in salt want to be perceived as credible to those we're sent to, to those that we speak to, to those that we exhort, to those that we lead. We want to be seen as credible. And the journey to credibility is far more than simply saying the right thing. It's a way of being. And as Moses wrestles with this question of credibility, the Lord raises a question. What is in your hand? Now, generally, you and I handle a lot of things on a daily basis. But there are some things that we grasp that are part of our journey, that are present with us in ways that we're not even paying attention. The staff in an Israelite family was handed down from father to son. And it was on that staff that the history and the genealogy of the family was written. And obviously the staff was originally a branch from a tree that was living and once it's cut off, it simply becomes a dead stick. And that dead stick becomes the story of where various tribes came from. And because Moses was of the tribe of Levi, more than likely notched on that staff from the bottom to the top were etchings that reflected on the history that was handed down to Moses. Very important. When David says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod of Moses is also the staff of Moses. The rod speaks of the future. The staff speaks of the past. History and destiny coalesce in one dead stick. One disconnected branch from a tree. Well, there's a dead stick upon which the Prince of Glory died. And it is the power of God unto salvation. But for Moses, his dead stick had no power, at least according to what he knew about it. And so when the Lord says, what is that in your hand? And Moses says a staff, he's basically telling the Lord, this was handed down to me and it contains my family history. And it is what I lean on in the dust storms of the Sinai. It's what I lean on on my journeys with the sheep. It's what I lean on as I lay my head to rest at night out here in the wilderness. It's what I take with me as I go to the watering holes to water the sheep because there may be false shepherds that I need to drive away for stealing that which belongs to my father-in-law. All the things that are tied to what is that in your hand? What is that in your hand? Well, we could say it's a dead stick, but for Moses, it wasn't quite that simple. For Moses, it was his family 
history. It was what was handed down to him. This was a sacred charge. What was in his hand, what, what was handed down. Jude 3 talks about the faith that was once for all traditioned or handed down to the saints. That what we have, and I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, he descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the quick or the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church with a small c, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Within all those baptismal statements which become the Apostles' Creed and later the Nicene Creed, the catechumen that was being baptized was stepping into the water, having been handed down by the creed, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This was essentially the belief system. And certainly within the Apostles' Creed, we have the ancient faith because we have fatherhood, sonship, and the procession of the Spirit as a way to explain as best as possible in human terms the mystery of the divine persons in the one Godhead. But it's a dead stick, Lord. It's a dead stick. It's my history. And God says, I need you to throw it down because what you think you're familiar with, you're not as familiar with as you, th you might, might perceive. I need you to throw it down. And throwing something down is a, is a, is a violent act. It's almost a form of renunciation. It's, it's not just letting go. It's pushing something away from you. Now, Moses has leaned on this staff for 40 years in his wilderness trek. This has become his constant companion. It's both a tool and a resource. It's both a weapon and a promise because the rod and the staff comfort us. And there's so much there about the rod being a type of the word, but this rod is also a type of the cross. But it has to be redeemed there has to be a, a sanctifying of what Moses has leaned on because Moses thinks he knows what he's leaning on, but he doesn't realize it's filled with serpentine wisdom. When he throws it down and dissociates from it and basically renounces it, he gets to see it for what it is. It's a snake. It's a venomous snake. And until he throws it down, he doesn't realize how unfamiliar it is, he is with what he thought he was so familiar with that's part of his history. Because 300, 400 years of enslavement has done something to the belief systems of the people of God because Pharaoh wears as his turban a cobra. And so the snake here represents an entire set of belief systems designed to intimidate and harass and oppress a people that have multiplied in ways that Pharaoh cannot understand and now represent a threat to his power. And what Moses doesn't realize is that he was shaped in Pharaoh's house.
And while he refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, he was shaped in the consciousness of Egypt after his mother weaned him. And even though what she spoke to him during his weaning period about being a great deliverer, he will not fully comprehend until long after he's driven into the wilderness, leaning on his staff, thinking he knows what it's all about, and being invited to discover what that staff really is all about. And when he throws it down and it becomes a venomous snake, he backs away from it. One of the healthiest things we can do when we are having a wrestling match with God is to throw down the thing we're so familiar with in his presence, casting it down and taking a step back and letting God show us what it really looks like and how much of the snake's wisdom have gotten into our child our child rearing years and our adolescence and our adulthood years and how easily we have succumbed to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, which is a dead stick for sure and in Christ we discover that the cross becomes the dead stick of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil where Christ gives himself but it also becomes the tree of life where again Christ says it is accomplished as he restores us to Father's original intention. And so it's in the throwing of it down that what is exposed to us is the venomous serpentine wisdom that comes from eating at the wrong tree. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which means all of us are susceptible to the deception of thinking we can take a shortcut to maturity in Christ by simply applying certain techniques or how-tos when in fact there are no shortcuts to spiritual formation. There's only a willingness to throw down what we're familiar with and then learn how to handle the serpentine in a way that's glorifying to Christ. And so the Lord tells him to reach from behind and get it to approach it from behind. And that word, therefore, behind speaks of before time. It speaks of the eternal dimension before time. What you and I need to understand is that the reason there's a credibility gap is because there has been such a search for two generations on identity. There's a crisis of meaning in the culture and there's a search for identity and purpose. And no matter how much people hear about purpose and hear about who they are in Christ, it's not enough. They continue to search for identity apart from the obvious answers of who they are in Christ. You begin with God. My identity cannot be confirmed if I don't begin with God. It's God first and us second. And so there is a clear sense in which throwing down what Moses is familiar with and being exposed to what's really there in serpentine wisdom, the best of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then learning how to approach that respectfully from behind. And that word from, from behind is the same word for eternity past, eternity before time. The only way you can come to terms with who you are and overcome the credibility gap and move in the demonstration of the spirit and power is not to try to figure out who you are. It's to begin with God in eternity past. 
You will never know who you are if you begin with you. You will only know who you are if you begin with God, the triune God who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so within the context of all of that, you and I need to understand that Moses was being invited to begin to see himself in light of God's eternal perspective that he didn't choose God, God chose him and appointed him to go and bear much fruit. Now, there was an issue for Moses in backing away because that serpentine wisdom also includes the fact that he was raised in Pharaoh's house. The crown of Pharaoh, as you may know, the Pharaoh of Egypt, the crown was a a snake wrapped all around like a turban on the top of the head of Pharaoh with, a, with its head pointed and the teeth biting at the very top and pinnacle of the turban of the Pharaoh. And so the cobra was the crown of Pharaoh. So when this dead stick becomes a snake, on the one hand, it is God revealing the need for a recognition in Moses of the serpentine wisdom that is not his power and that comes from below and not above. And also it is a need for there to be an awareness that this snake represents in some way a portion of Moses' past that is still in his future and the Pharaoh he's going to have to face and overcome if he's going to bring slaves out from subordination into the liberty of the sons and daughters of God in the wilderness. And so the snake has a twofold meaning. Either way, Moses has to approach it from behind, has to approach it from the eternal perspective, if I apply it to us, of who the Father is so we can know who we are. And then from there, there can be a grasping of it by its tail, not by its head, but by its tail, by its hindermost parts, that grasping it by the tail then prevents the possibility of being mortally wounded by the snake. But when Moses gets a firm grasp on the tail of what he thought was a staff but is a snake, it becomes a staff again. And God says, and this is how you're going to let the sons of Israel know I've appeared for you. I am taking what's in your hand and transforming it into a sign and a wonder. And every time you throw it down, it will become a snake. And it will swallow up the snakes of Jean's and Jambres in the court of Egypt. And they will match you, Moses, tit for tat until a certain plague, and they will not be able to reproduce it. The Egyptians could not, is what the scripture will say. The Egyptians could not. And they were the ones that said, this is the finger of God. Whereas John's and Jambres in Pharaoh's court represent the arm and the hand of Pharaoh, all God needs is to lift a finger, and those armies are destroyed and gone. Take it up by its tail. And it became a staff in his hand. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff, the instruments of a shepherd, the one true shepherd of Israel 
who calls us by his glory and virtue, wants to deliver us from a credibility gap. But it requires that the things we're most familiar with, how we teach techniques based on a Western culture, how we get caught up in a leadership fetish based on a Western culture, how we use corporate franchise language to talk about the local church, which has nothing to do with a corporate franchise because we're caught up in a Western culture. All of that has to be thrown down. Our need for approval has to be thrown down. Our performing to be accepted has to be thrown down. Our celebrity culture of, I want the biggest, the brightest, and the best, I want my 15 minutes of fame, all of that is serpentine wisdom and has to be thrown down and seen for the venomous serpentine wisdom that it is that can kill us. And then we have to approach it from an eternal perspective and reconcile our past with our present. And in reconciling our past with our present by the presence of God doing it through taking us through a series of processes as he did Moses, then and only then can we grasp it with a firmer grasp based on eternal grace and take that staff and allow it to confirm the word we say with signs and wonders following. The credibility is in the mastery of that which tried to master us that we were afraid of, that now we've confronted and has to yield to us in the presence of all that challenges us. The credibility factor today is larger than ever before in the church, and we desperately need a fresh awakening but we also, for that to happen, need a company of men and women that are unashamed of the gospel, that are determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified, that speak a wisdom that is from above, and that do not preach in the persuasive words of human beings' wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and power. Our credibility doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from the Christ who backs up what we say when we speak faithfully and then presents himself alive by many convincing proofs. As we prepare to cross the threshold into 2020, into the beginning of the third decade, of the 21st century, you're gonna probably hear a whole lot of prognostications about what's coming. Some of it will be definitely worth paying attention to. Some of it will be pure speculation. And some of it will be rather detailed and based on historic trends both macro and micro trends that have long periods of history that provide us a framework for looking from the past through the present to the future. Within that, we want to also remember that all of these senses that we might have about the future cannot accurately or fully predict the future. 
Now, it doesn't mean that there haven't been predictions that have been accurate. But it does mean that from the perspective we operate in, in time and space, the future is an unknown. What we do know is that we can anticipate it. We can, by various planning through scenarios of possibility, come up with ways of coping with it or embracing it or meeting it when it arrives. Again, based on trends that are already present and outcomes that we're already getting based on those trends and how they may become more intense or how they may die out. But future fever is going to hit a feverish pitch as we move into 2020 because we have this proclivity to want to weigh in on what will unfold or what wants to unfold or what might possibly unfold. And so crossing the threshold and stepping into the future can be both exciting and unnerving at the same time. Because in many ways, the future is up for grabs. And given that the future is up for grabs and it cannot be known, somehow in the economy of God and in the wisdom of God, that while God never changes, he has somehow by giving us free agency, invited us to participate with him in the unfolding of the future. So much so that there are choices we make in the presence of a God who knows the end from the beginning that actually have a profound impact on the outcomes that we obtain. Now, how a God who knows everything from beginning to end and oversees everything can yet limit himself by giving us free agency is one of those mysteries that theologians will spend hours debating over, not just once, not just twice, but many, many times. Suffice it to say, though, that you are a creature that makes choices. And the choices you make determine the outcomes you get. And so the future is going to show up at your doorstep, whether you like it or not. And how you enter that future will be based on how well you've discerned what has brought you to the present moment from your past and how well you have chosen what you have chosen that has brought you to the present moment from the past. The future can be repeated based on what we know, or it can be molded and influenced based on choosing for what we don't know. The challenge with choosing for what we don't know is that we are in an arena of making what I'm going to call educated guesses. And I did use the word educated because it's not a matter of being fickle or arbitrary or grab whatever first thought comes to my head and that possibly can happen. But with a careful examination of where we've been, how we got to where we are based on where we've been, 
and how where we are might reveal to us in the trajectory of where we've been and where we are, how things might progress as we move forward. And especially as we cross this threshold into a brand new decade in the 21st century where we are already seeing massive sea changes in the culture. The tectonic plates of the culture deep below the level of consciousness have been shifting for quite a while. But the fault lines on the surface of the culture are very evident in terms of the division, the strife, the rancor, the animosity, the violence. There are so many things. And yet, even within all those things that are disturbing, there are clear signs of hope. There are clear signs of possibility. There are clear signs that there are those who deeply think that we can do more together than we can apart. And we want to focus on that because that seems to be, in my estimation, where God wants to take us as the community of believers to where we can do more together than we could apart, that the synergy of the Spirit would bring us to a place where one plus one equals three and not merely one plus one equals two. I remember when our children were younger and we went on one of those early vacations when they were able to know what was going on. They might have been four and five years old. We took them to Colonial Williamsburg, and while we were there, we also stopped at Bush Gardens. And at the time, the Clydesdale horses were just coming into their barns and being fed and cared for after being taken out into the park on one of those big wagons. And King, who was the leader at the time of that whole team of Clydesdales, was in his barn with his head hanging out over the door and towered over myself, my wife, and my two little kids. He was huge, he was massive, and he was beautiful. And we had some conversations with the attendants to those horses, and I wanted to know about their weight, I wanted to know about their strength, and I was told the story of how one Clydesdale could pull nine tons of cargo on a wagon. That's quite a bit of cargo, that's quite a bit of weight, that's quite a bit of strength for one particular horse. Now, clearly these horses were bred for carrying heavy loads and so they are massive, they are amazing to look at, to be around. But one could pull 9,000 pounds. Or nine, not 9,000 pounds, nine tons, nine tons, even more. And so you would think that if one could pull nine tons, two could pull 18. Do the math. One plus one equals two. Nine tons plus nine tons equals 18 tons. But what the attendant told us is that what they discovered long, long ago was that when you put two Clydesdales together in a yoke, they can pull not just two tons, but three tons, so that 
Instead of each pulling nine tons, they each pull nine tons plus the work of another half of a horse. So together, two Clydesdales don't pull, can't pull 18 tons, they can pull 27 tons. So if you do the math there, based on synergy, where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, one plus one equals three. The word synergy is a biblical word. Second Corinthians chapter six, Paul opens that passage with the fact that we are co-laborers with Christ. And the word there for co-laborers is synergos, synergy. We synergize with Christ. Now, Jesus invites us to participate with him in the laboring for and in the kingdom of God by the Holy Spirit. He clearly carries the heavy end of the the weight, and yet he brings us into the fellowship he has with the Father by the Spirit, and he works in us his will, and he works in us his desire, and we will the will of Christ before the Father by the grace of the Spirit, and we accomplish more together than we ever could apart so that there is a synergy that takes place with Christ and with one another that has the power for us to accomplish far more together than we ever could alone. Now, one look at the culture in recent years, and you will discover the power of synergy. What looked like a little insignificant movement relative to... Um, issues of um, abuse of women. One voice became two, became many, until now there's a clear sense in which the culture is making a massive sea change because of the way in which women's issues have been silenced, have been marginalized, have been overlooked, and have left room for them to be taken advantage of and not treated as equals. That's just one of many examples. I'm I'm simply saying, though, that one or two women that cried out became a massive movement that gave courage to many women to lift their voice. And in that, what we have seen is a consciousness shift in the culture, a sea change. The tectonics plates were shifting deep below the surface and then ultimately the fault lines where the eruption takes place in the culture shook that which could be shaken. Well, we do know without any question, without any shadow of a doubt, that in Hebrews chapter 12, the voice of the Lord, as quoted from Haggai, is going to shake the nations, the earth, the sea, the dry land, and the nations, that God's voice shakes the nations and shakes out in every generation that which is not kingdom. Now, the shaking, particularly as it relates to the church, becomes vitally important because when the church fails to discern the shaking within her own community, 
she then fails to rightly interpret the shakings within the larger culture. And that's what I want us to be aware of in this whole issue of synergy. Yes, we can accomplish more together than we can apart. But if we fail to discern the shakings of the Holy Spirit within the community, and we misinterpret those, we will not be able to speak accurately and faithfully and powerfully and hopefully to a culture that's in the midst of a major shift and sea change on many, many levels. And I feel as though for some who look at the future, they oversimplify and fantasize about they want, the way they want the future to be without adequately wrestling with things that have already taken place in history. Because if we don't know where we've come from, we cannot know where we are. And if we don't have an accurate appraisal of where we are, we cannot get to where God intends us to be. And one of the things that I think is so important is that within the post-Enlightenment era and the post-modern era, the whole notion of absolutes has been dismissed as valid. So that the statement, there are no absolutes, has become the mantra of postmodernism. Within the context of claiming that there are no absolutes, an entire collective psyche that wants to embrace that without critical thinking, without critiquing it, without challenging it, to simply embrace it collectively causes a collective blindness to come on a culture that then marginalizes and ultimately dismisses as invalid anything historical that precedes the present moment. So the whole questioning of history and then rewriting and redefining history becomes acceptable to the point where we end up assuming that we are wiser than our predecessors. We never take into account that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that these cycles in history have repeated themselves and have repeated themselves to such a degree that it was Santayana who said, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And that may be true, but in a culture where in a collective psyche we've become blind to the point where we believe together that the past doesn't matter, Santayana's lessons will go ignored and have to be proven instead of accepted. And the only way they can be proven is by a generation making major mistakes that they didn't have to make in order to arrive at a conclusion that was already present in history had they been paying attention. And my, again, my concern is where the church is in all this because we keep rehashing certain issues based on the way we look at the future as if the book of Revelation was a book that was designed to speak to only one generation, namely the end, ultimate, last generation, 
and therefore we come up with interpretations about the future that are not faithful to the way the church has looked at that book from the very beginning and the way in which John the Revelator intended for that book to be read and understood by the communities that followed Jesus that he was bishop over in his day and then how from that context it was to be engaged and wrestled with in every succeeding generation so that that which was and that which is and that which is to come reveals cycles and patterns, trends and trajectories that we need to learn from, that we need to glean from, that we need to understand at a more significant level, especially when we cross thresholds into unknown territory and we move into the future with a sense that there are things that want to unfold. Again, knowing that the future cannot be predicted. Well, you say, well, don't you realize that we already know the future is going to be that Christ is going to wrap it all up? Absolutely. We know that without any question. That's part of the orthodoxy of our faith. He came, he is coming again. And yet that word coming is the word parousia. It actually means appearing. We get the word coming in the English as a close cognate to that, but we end up thinking Christ is coming from a place that he not is not already present, when in fact Christ is with us. And what's going to happen at the second coming is the unveiling and the revealing of the one who already is seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. So the powers of the age to come are already breaking in on the current age. However, the details of that are often shrouded in Scripture in mystery. And the more we speculate about those, the blinder we become and the less open we are to the synergy of the Spirit, whereby we can more rightly divide the word of truth and accurately interpret what's taking place in our day based on what we have seen in the flow of biblical history of how these things have occurred before and how they've been responded to before. I remember hearing James Jordan years ago claiming all the Bible is prophecy, even the book of Leviticus. And he made the statement at a lecture where he was getting ready to teach on the book of Leviticus. This is back in the 80s. And I thought it was quite the statement until he began to unpack the book of Leviticus from a perspective of seeing Christ in the book and seeing the church in the book. And when he did that, I said, oh, that makes absolute sense. And so the authority of the word of God is relevant for every generation throughout all of time. But in a day when we are in the midst of 
questioning everything and claiming there are no absolutes. We're endeavoring to rewrite the scriptures according to our convenience. And we're finding ourselves in this sea change, seeking to shift the moorings away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Now, more deeply problematic is that we have an entire generation that doesn't even know what the faith once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3, actually even means. And so we've got the idea, well, the faith once for all delivered to the saints is that I have faith to move mountains. That is not the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The faith once for all delivered to the saints has to do with God the Father as creator, God the Son as the, as the word through whom all things were created, who then took on human flesh through the womb of the virgin and was conceived by the Spirit and historically existed at a time of the fullness of times and was executed as a common criminal and a, and a rabble-rouser under the hands of Pilate and was buried, um, and yet he rose from the dead and appeared to many. He ascended to the right hand of God, the place of ultimate favor, the throne of the universe, um, and took the scroll of the Ancient of Days and was the only one worthy to open the book, and that is the word of the living God, to open the, the book and to begin to reveal as the wonderful counselor the mysteries that are hidden in the God-breathed word that now has become our canon. And then at Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit by the Father through the Son that brings to birth the church, the ecclesia, the called-out company of the ongoing incarnation of Christ, through whom the Spirit demonstrates the power of resurrection life. And might I add, nothing can stay dead in the pres presence of resurrection if we truly want to practice resurrection life. And I'm not talking about sensational miracles. I'm talking about rising out of dead things that are tied to a culture that is blind and a culture that is deaf. And from following Jesus, being able to understand what Jesus is up to, where he is going. And perhaps the most important question, are we going with him? And as we get ready to cross the threshold into 2020, a question I raised 10 years ago, I'm asking again. Three questions. What's Jesus up to? Where's he going? Are we going with him? And it'll be interesting to see what the prognosticators and those that operate in the prophetic say about 2020 and beyond as it relates to what Jesus is up to, where's he going, and are we going with him? Now, obviously, you're going to have, for as many prophetic voices as there are, you're going to have that many ideas about where he's going. And perhaps he's going in all those places, or perhaps he's not at all, and much of it is just prophesying out of our own active imagination and our subjectivity. 
but we don't want to get pushback on that because we have to claim revelation for everything we say and we would be um, remiss in our culture if we allowed ourselves to challenge certain prophetic utterances because we think that would not be appropriate when in actual fact we're called to discern whether things are prophetic or not and that all prophecy is intended to be judged. But the fact is we're going to hear a lot of prognostications in the next number of months. And they're not going to be just prognostications about the immediate future. They're going to be prognostications about the somewhat more distant future. And I would venture to say if we look back at history, those who prophetically spoke to where we are today were not the ones that were called prophets, but they sure did understand where we've been and where they were and how that would relate to where they were going based on how they wrestled with the sacred text and together collectively began to develop a conviction based on the authority of the Spirit in the text and the authority of the Spirit in their communities that delivered them from the kind of blindness that is characteristic of the current culture and perhaps characteristic of the church at Laodicea where they needed salve to anoint their eyes. And we desperately need a fresh seeing, a fresh hearing, a fresh knowing. But it's not going to come by merely peering into the future. It's going to come by prolonged gazes at a past that has been devalued, but that is extremely relevant to where we are so that we can understand how we got here, so that then we can see the traces of the footprints of Jesus in history and then ask the question, given that this is where he has brought us to, and let's just focus on the Western Hemisphere in all of its challenges. This is where we are. How did we get here? Where did the church fail? Where did the church go blind? Where did the church miss their moment? Where did they veer off from the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Where did they go wrong? Not where did the culture go wrong. That's secondary. Where did the church miss it? And how do we get back on course? And if we can discern the journey of the road to Emmaus as the journey of Jesus and the church from the first coming all the way to the final second coming, we just might discover that he yet needs to open our eyes, open our hearts, open our wills, open our minds, to better understand from the sacred text who he is, what he's up to, where he's going, so that we can say with confidence, we are going with him.